All right, we're live. Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what the Bible has to say about anything so we can know what to believe about it. The Word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the way in which God has revealed truth to us. So we want to study the scriptures to find out what the truth is. Now we may believe something, but if it doesn't, if it's not backed up by scripture, then we want to make sure that we evaluate it properly and rightly divide the word of God. I want to welcome you guys that are logging on now. Uh, we have Facebook, YouTube, uh, and also a couple of couple places on Facebook, and also those of you uh, that are listening on TruthQuest podcast. We have a first question today, and this question was left on the YouTube comments, and um, I wanted to go ahead and cover it a little bit today, and that is, what is the Apocrypha, and should it be in the Bible? And the question was actually asked from the Catholic point of view, that the Catholics have books in the Bible that we as Protestants don't have, why don't we have them, and should they be in Scripture? So the Apocrypha are a series of books that were written between the writing of the Old Testament and the time of Christ. Uh, out of all of the all of the books in the Old Testament, out of all the books in the Old Testament, most of them are quoted. Uh, the Apocrypha is never quoted. It's also where a lot of people get a lot of ideas for false teaching. It's just as you study the Apocrypha, the word Apocrypha means false. Um, we know that the, the Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox, which has even more books that they add into it, that they have a different term for these. But the term that we evangelicals use for it is Apocrypha because we do not believe that they are supposed to be in the Bible. And if you ever go back and read them, you can see that they support uh, some teachings that you don't find other places in Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that the Apocrypha don't have any value. They are ancient letters. They are, they are um, good for us to be able to look at what people were believing, but we don't want to approach them the way that we approach Scripture. Uh, the Jews never accepted these apocryphal books, and so they were never carried forward um, for, for us. And um, there has been a rejection, a pretty good overall rejection of the Apocrypha, um, except for, as I said, the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, but I believe that we have come to the right place and that there is value in there for us to be able to study them and read them, but not as the Word of God. So if you're joining us today, we want to welcome you. Really glad that you're here. If you would, make sure that you reread your question a couple of times so you make sure that it's clear. We also will take one question per person as we make our way through this today. We do these Q&As on Wednesday and Saturday at 3 o'clock from 3 to 4. Uh, so I want to welcome Daniel, who was um, one of our moderators. Good to have you here, Daniel. And um, we are going to go ahead and take our first question. Uh, it is from Psychman45. Psychman, good to see you. Uh, it says, if God healed every Christian of every ill, would that not be a terrible witness encouraging folks of the world who, know, noted, uh, who noticed to follow Christ for the wrong reasons, like John 6, 31 and 32, and John 2, uh, 23 and 24. All right, well, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at this. Um, uh, psych man, I appreciate your question. Um, I, let, let, and, and we'll talk just a moment about why God does not heal everyone or why the Bible reveals that God doesn't heal everyone. Um, let's just go to one of these here at least, um, 31 through 32. Let me go ahead and put the scriptures up on the screen for you guys and you'll be able to see them here as we look at them. All right, um, let's make sure that I get the right. There we go. Okay, so um, let's see. Verse 31 says, Our fathers ate manna in the desert. As it was written, he gave them bread to eat from heaven. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give them bread from heaven, but my father gives them bread from heaven. For the bread, um, God is he, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, I see I see what you're, um, the point you're making there, psych man, which is that they wanted to follow because Jesus was providing them the bread and that would have been the wrong reason um, for them to follow. I think, um, obviously, the Lord does heal. And um, I don't believe healing has, has, has gone away. Um, I believe by a matter of practice, it is, it is a rare thing. That's just, a, again, a matter of practice. I, there's no scripture that would say that healing is rare. Um, but just as a matter of what we see, it's rare. We do see it, just not a lot. And uh, we want to pray your will be done. We know that Paul had an infirmity. Uh, he talked about in Galatians. He talked about it in Corinthians, a thorn in his flesh given to him by Satan to keep him humble and that he calls it an infirmity in both of those passages. And he told the Galatians, you would have taken out your eyes and given me your eyes. So Paul probably had some kind of, an, kind of an eye disease. And here he is, a man, an apostle used by God to heal, and he is not healed. The thing is, is that God has his plans and his purposes for, for God not healing, not, not healing sicknesses. God's got the work that he's doing. And we surrender to him and we say, Lord, I trust you and I believe in you. Uh, and so your will be done. There are going to be people who, people who say that that's a lack of faith, but it takes just as much faith to be healed from cancer as it does to say, Lord, if this is what you've got for me, then be glorified in this as well. Um, that's God's design. So yeah, if God did um, cause people to become rich, if God did heal them all the time. If God said, you come to me, I'll, I'll answer your prayers, whether they're good or bad. We do know that if we abide in Christ, whatever we desire, we're going to receive. So we know that our desires change. And if we delight in the Lord, that he gives us the desires of our heart, that our desires change. But I think this is good, a good thinking and good insight as to one of the reasons why God would not heal everyone. But I think a larger reason, maybe psych man, that we can point back to is that God has a plan in suffering. God uses difficulties and sufferings uh, in our lives. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate your question and it is good to see you. All right, so we have a question here from Jeff. Um, Jeff says, can you cite two or three scriptures in the Old Testament that refer strongest to Jesus as the Messiah? Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate um, that. Uh, I think if, um, let me just think about this for a moment, um, the, that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, I think that we would go back to Isaiah where Jesus opens up Isaiah as the, um, in, in, in Nazareth. He, he goes into the synagogue in, and he's handed a scroll and he reads out a messianic passage. And then Jesus closes the scroll and says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus claims to be the Messiah. Also, when you go back and you look at messianic prophecies, like the suffering servant in Isaiah, and there's actually four different passages that are the suffering servant passages um, that Jesus fulfilled them. And Isaiah 53 is the largest of those. And when you go back and you read it, you go, this is exactly what the suffering Messiah did, what he did for us when he came to suffer and die for our sins. I think Psalms 22 is another messianic passage. It's an Old Testament passage of crucifixion, a thousand years before crucifixion was invented. And, and actually Jesus fulfilled many of the things. They divided his garments, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, I thirst, are all there in Psalms 22. It's an absolutely amazing prophecy and it is a prophetic uh, prophecy as well. Uh, I also think of Daniel chapter nine, where uh, it says um, that there will be 483 years from the command to restore and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, which was in the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, 483 years later, you come to the time, the first, the, the, the early thirties in the uh, first century. And it says there that from the command to go forth to rebuild the wall, there will be 69 sevens or 483 years until Messiah. And then you have the ministry of Jesus. And when you look around during the early thirties, 
who could fulfill the ministry of the Messiah. There's only one person who could do that, and that is Jesus. Um, uh, Jeff, we have, um, I have a couple of videos uh, that you could go to, if you go to YouTube um, and go to our, you know, Calvary Tucson um, YouTube page, and then you type in up at the top, Messiah, there are shorter videos and longer videos where I've gone into detail on these passages from the Old Testament where we actually read them out. So if you want to do something that's shorter, uh, you would be able uh, you would be able to do that. Um, and that way, um, I, you could get some scriptures that just aren't off the top of my head, um, but that you would be able to, uh, to really dive into and find. So um, let me just see if I can if I can pull one of them up here. Um, no, it, instead of, well, I got to search. Let me just try one more. Let me just try one more time here. I'm trying, I'm at our site. I'm trying to just type in, uh, Messiah and, um, watch, uh, see what comes up. Um, so there's, yeah, we've got a, um, is Jesus the Jewish Messiah? It's, it's a, it's a longer one. Let me go ahead and just see if I can share this screen with you here. Um, let's see, screen share. Yeah, yeah, here we go. All right, so this is on our, our webpage. Uh, uh, so we have a hot topic here. It's five minutes and 49 seconds. Um, is Jesus the Messiah? I go over a lot of the scriptures there. We've also got a longer teaching, uh, is Jesus the Messiah? And an older one that we have here. I say older, but it was, what when, when was this thing? 2019. 20, 20, uh, 2019. Um, and it is, is Jesus really the Messiah? All right. So there's just three of them that we have, and we've got a, also got a uh, playlist that has seven videos in it um, on whether uh, on Jesus being the Messiah. So let me just go ahead and stop that here and um, look over here at who's here. So we've got something from John MacArthur, um, something from Alan Parr, Skip Heitzig, Chuck Smith, all on Jesus being the Messiah. So that'll give you just a good starting point to be able to go in and study more of that. All right, so thank you very much, Jeff. I appreciate that. I think it's really good for us as Christians to have a good sense of what the Old Testament said about the Messiah and Jesus being the Messiah, being the fulfillment of that. Uh, Jesus definitely de uh, declared himself to be the Messiah and uh, it was definitely in the Old Testament as well. So hopefully those resources will be good for you, Jeff. I think that um, you know, the, 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 the hot topic is just a little over five minutes. So you can, um, a lot of times I'll stop things like that. I'm watching, I'll write down the verses so I can go back and study them and maybe use blue letter to be able to cross reference them. All right. So, uh, I appreciate that question. Give me an opportunity to talk about Jesus, uh, being the Messiah. All right. We're going to bring in a picture, uh, a picture. Hey, we're bringing in a picture and we're bringing in uh, a question from Wayne. If you're new here uh, to our Q&A, we want to welcome you. We hope that you are genuinely blessed and that you stay close to Christ and that you are truth seeker. Our desire is to not be an I'm right seeker. Sometimes we defend what we've been taught and sometimes we're not secure about it. We lack security on what we've been taught. And so because we're insecure, we strike out and we argue and we attack instead of really wanting to know what the Bible says and making sure that we're believing the right things. So Wayne says, good afternoon. Uh, is the day of Christ versus the day of the Lord uh, two separate events? Could it be the day of Christ is when he comes for his bride? Thank you, Pastor Furrow. Uh, thank you, Wayne. I appreciate that. Um, it seems that they are interchangeable. The day of Christ is mentioned in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and uh, it talks about a departure there, remember, and about a departure coming first and the man of sin being revealed during the tribulation uh, period. The day of the Lord is a day, it's not just a day when Jesus comes back. So people want to say, well, the day of the Lord is the day that Jesus returns to this earth and brings judgment upon the earth. It's when he rides in on a white horse and the sword's coming out of his mouth and he takes vengeance on those who dwell on the earth. But that's not only the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord could be a reference kind of like I could say it was the day of, it was the, the days of, you know, J. Vernon McGee. And I, I mean a whole period of time. So the day of the Lord can mean the end of the of, of time. The day of the Lord could mean a time when God shows up with a specific person. I mean, a specific time 
to judge a certain group. And you find this in context. So in the Old Testament, it talks about the first time we ever find it is talking about the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And the, and the day of the Lord is mentioned there, that he came and the day of the Lord came to them. And so the day of the Lord is this concept of God bringing judgment. And we do know there is an ultimate day of the Lord in which he will return. We see that encapsulated as the entire tribulation period, um, although it could talk about the day of um, the, the rapture of the church, the gathering together to be with him um, and separately. So I don't think that the day of Christ is the rapture and the day of the Lord is the second coming. I think the day of Christ and the day of the Lord could both refer to the rapture. It depends on the context. And then it could also refer to the actual second coming and it could refer to the entire tribulation period. So it's a, a longer term. For example, I'll give you an example of this. In Acts chapter 2, um, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church, Peter quotes Joel, where Joel says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all men. So that last days is the entire church age. So I realize that's different than the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is when God shows up with judgment in mind. That's the concept of the day of the Lord. And um, there may be other places I would have to look at a little bit more to see if there's certain contexts where the day of Christ and the day of the Lord are different. But in 2 Thessalonians, for sure, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the day of Christ is used as the day of the Lord. All right, so thank you very much, Wayne. I appreciate that. That's good insight when you start looking at it. I think just another thought on that, Wayne, as well, is that the New Testament's written by a lot of different authors. It's not just written by one. And so sometimes they one, one will use a term and it's not like they're working off of some kind of a key to make sure every time they use a word like soul, that they're meaning it the same way or spirit that they're meaning it is the same way just like we would use the word spirit differently today and you've got to know context to kind of look at how it's used we could talk about the spirit of hospitality or we could talk about um the the uh, the, the uh, um this a demonic spirit and you would look at context to be able to figure that out so that's the day of the lord it's got to be looked at with context understanding that there, that one writer may use it one way and another writer may use it another way when it comes to the New Testament. I, I, I hope that's helpful to you. I know it became very helpful to me because I used to think that, you know, if you could find a definition in one place for a word in the Bible, then you could carry that definition over throughout the rest of the New Testament, but you just can't do it. Just like you can in English. You've got, the, the context has to help you. So you've got to go back and read the context to be able to study it. And it's that way with the day of the Lord. All right, thank you very much, Wayne. I really appreciate that. Uh, we have a question here from Alex. Alex, good to see you. Hope uh, your day's going well. Alex says, hello, Pastor. Does 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 give advice on how to deal with uh, professing Christians in the workplace? We don't show Christian attributes. Is there a better, who don't show Christian aspects, is there a better scripture? All right, well, let's go ahead and take a look at this. So um, 2 Timothy, let me go ahead and get there and then we'll bring it up on the screen for you. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, 3, 1 through 5. So um, yeah, so it's, it's the perilous times passage. Um, let me go ahead and put it up on the screen here and I'll show this to you. Um, all right, so um, it says, um, but, um, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemies, disobedient parents, unthankful, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, all of that we would think is talking about non-believers, right? That, that's the way non-believers are. But look at this, look at verse five having a form of godliness, but denying the power and from such people turn away. So these are actually, this is, this is the attitude of the church in the last days. This is in connection with the great falling away or the great, um, what we would call the great falling away. Uh, the Bible says that in the latter times, men are going to heap up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. Um, and, um, uh, there also, uh, it talks about, uh, doctrines of demons. And I think that, that today that is one of the signs that we're living in the last days. 
churches that don't preach the gospel, churches that don't talk about Christ, churches that talk about positive things, the whole seeker sensitive movement that is, you know, a couple of decades old now, but it was that whole idea. You don't want people to come to church and hear something that's going to offend them. So they just said things that didn't really help them. And that's always a problem. So yes, I think that this is a very good picture um, uh, of how we deal with someone who was in the church. Let's see, let me go into your question again. Does 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 give advice on how we should deal with professing Christians in the workplace who don't show Christian attributes? Is there a better scripture? Um, yeah, I don't know that this is, um, yeah, it says when such people turn away. Um, I, I think that I would take that as a bigger picture, Alex. I would take that as being a picture of here we have teachers, we've got these people in the last days, we've got churches, we don't want to be a part of them, uh, turn away from those things. And if this person is very vocal, if they are a very vocal Christian and they're, and they're doing that, it would be good for you to make sure that there's a separation from you and them to make sure that people don't identify you with them. Um, but as far as shunning, I'm not so sure that we are supposed to shun. Um, we, we, we do at times, and you asked about a better scripture. I think there might be one that may be a little better in Second Thessalonians chapter three. Um, and this is a passage that I'm going to be teaching on tonight. Um, and, um, let's see. Let's see if I can find this section on this passage here. Um, yeah, I mean, this passage here talks about making sure that you don't, that you're not hanging around these people that are idle and that are busybodies, but not as non-believers, not shunning them completely. And, um, so yeah, I mean, if you're around someone who says I'm a Christian and they are living a completely ungodly lifestyle, you want to win them to Christ as well. You, just because someone professes to be a Christian doesn't mean that we don't try to win them to the Lord, but there should be some kind of a separation. And I think this is just saying, look, you're not, don't, don't go out, you know, don't go out and hang out with these people that are doing, that are doing, you know, these things. Go and hang out for your fellowship with people that really love the Lord. But that doesn't mean that you're not going to try to witness to them or that you're not going to show them politeness, kindness. Um, Alex, I think that it's not like Jehovah Witness is shunning when we um, turn away from someone or, or, or don't hang out with them. All right. So thank you, Alex. I appreciate that. I wish I could see that. I wish I could get to, um, this pick, this passage. Um, all right. All right. So I, I can't find it. All right. So thank you very much, Alex. I appreciate that. I do believe that there are other passages that help us in this. When we talk about church discipline, when we talk about you know, with someone who's teaching godliness as a means of financial gain, the Bible says, withdraw yourself from them. Doesn't mean we shun them. It just means that we don't sit under their teaching, that we don't get caught up hanging out with them. Like a person like this, the, the list of things that are here is not a person you want to go and spend a weekend with. You don't want to go on a weekend trip with someone like this. Um, it's just not going to be good for you overall. You want to find people who you can trust, who you love, that have a strong relationship with Christ, and iron is going to sharpen iron. All right, Alex, so thank you very much uh, for your question. There definitely for sure is a separation that needs to take place, um, and we can look at some other passages. So we have a question from Shelly. Uh, she says, in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, does Jesus stay in the kingdom when he hands everything over to God? All right, so I'm not sure what the passages you're talking about here, Stacy. I mean, Shelly. So let's go to, um, let's go ahead and go to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and take a look at this and see what we can. 1 Corinthians 15 and let's go to 24 and then I'll put the scriptures up on the screen for you. I mean, look at it in context here. So it's talking about the last enemy being destroyed, right? And that's death. So let me go ahead and put it up on the screen here for you so you can look at it. And um, let's take a look at this. Um, so you said 24, then comes the end. What 
he delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. All right, so let's go back to our first question. Take a look at the question here. Did Jesus stay in the kingdom when he hands everything over to God? Yes, I, I don't think there's any reason for us to think that as Jesus is wrapping up the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God starts when Jesus establishes the church and the kingdom of God is among us. It's among us right now and it will be wrapped up um, when the um, when death is finally taken care of and then things are handed over to the Father and the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God continues to go on. Remember that Jesus said in John chapter three, um, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And um, so that phrase is used there as well. And so that's used as a sense of the kingdom of God being something uh, that is that is a, a little bit longer. And let me go ahead and bring you up on screen. I pulled that verse up. I want you to be able to see this. So um, again, this is John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So that's just talking about eternity. It's handed over to him. Jesus will stay in the, uh, the gospel when that takes place. All right, thank you very much. I, uh, I appreciate uh, your question, Shelly. I hope you have a great day. So it's good to see you guys. So we have a question, a question here from Kaylin. Um, Kaylin, hi, how are you? If you're new here uh, to our Truth Quest podcast, we wanna welcome you. Uh, we take questions and we look at them through the lens of scripture and we take any questions that you wanna um, bring in. Uh, so this says, have you seen the coming convergence? And if so, what did you think of it? It is an Arizona prime and about the end times. I did not see the coming convergence. Um, so it is um, uh, it's definitely something I'll take a look at. I'm trying to find something to write on here. Um, yeah, it is definitely something that I'll take a look at. Um, Kaylin, to see um, what I think about it. Uh, hopefully uh, I can kind of report on that uh, at our next Q&A. All right. So thank you very much. The coming convergence, we'll take a look at it and I'll let you know my thoughts. All right, Amazon Prime, so I'll be able to watch that and um, we'll make a note of it. All right, so thank you, Kaylin, for that. I appreciate it. I uh, will take a look at it. We have a question here from Jari. Let me do this though. Let me first of all, bring you back over to our regular page and then I will bring Jari in. All right, Jari. So Jari has a question. Why are the fish fossils eating each other in animals hadn't eaten anything until after the flood? Um, were the law, uh, laws prohibited from eating meat before the flood? Okay, um, so Jari, I, I have this as a first question on a future Q&A. So I found this question asked earlier and I went ahead and I made that. So the question that I keyed off of though is was there death before Adam fell? Okay, so that's kind of the fossil question here. And what does that mean when, um, when death came into the world by Adam? All right, in that passage. So we'll look at that in the future. So I'll take care of the second part of your question here, um, which is were there laws prohibiting eating meat before the flood? Uh, not that I know of, but I don't think we ate meat before the flood. I think, well, wait a minute. I don't know that we didn't eat meat before the flood. Sorry. I meant before the fall. Um, so, um, no, there were not, there weren't, I mean, there was already clean and unclean animals because there were clean and unclean animals that were brought onto, uh, the ark. And I think the people were all, they were already eating meat, um, by that time. So I'm gonna to have to go back and look at it. I'm just trying now to think about it, Jari. Um, if uh, what passages would talk about them eating meat prior to the flood, and I, I just don't. I don't. You know what? I don't want to answer this wrongly. As far as yeah, I don't. There, I don't think there were any laws that were prohibiting it. Um, but 
I don't, but I don't know. So let me go ahead and take care of your question about the fossil record and death being in the fossil record and stepping on an ant. Did they step on an ant when they were in the garden and kill an ant? Was there death before Adam and Eve? And what about the fossil record and what would the fossil record reveal? And we could talk about, um, we could talk about the flood creating the fossil record instead of the fossil record being what science is trying to say that it is. Um, all right. So thank you, Jari, for your question. Sorry that I was not able to answer that um, effectively. All right. Um, but I do have something planned in the future for that, that question. All right. Question. And this comes from, from James. I have been given um, uh, grieving for three years since my mom passed away. How do you know when to stop? Um, thanks, James. I appreciate your question and sorry for the loss of your mom. There are no hard and fast rules on grieving. Uh, even when you hear about the six steps of grieving or the seven steps of grieving or the five you know, steps to grieving, they're all different for people and they come in different orders. Um, and so a lot of times you can get stuck in grief and that's not good. Um, you got to go through it. You've just got to face it and go through it. And it may be that you've been grieving for three years and just this is the natural process of you going through that grieving, um, I would go to I would go to God, and and really seek Him as to whether or not there's anything specific that you should do to be able to move forward in your relationship. In um, in videos where I talk about grieving, and I've got a couple of them. Um, again, we've got hot topics and we've got full length teachings. How to survive grief was the name of a full length teaching and um, how to help someone grieving um, was a hot topic and how to survive grieving um, was a hot topic as well. So I talk a lot in those videos about going through grieving and how to make sure that you come out the other side healthy. I don't like when people say you need to move on because hey, for those of us that have lost loved ones, there's no real moving on, but you do move forward. You do move forward in life and you've got to make sure that you can live your life so I would love to sit, if, if I could sit down and talk with you more, James, I would find out how is this grieving hindering you? How is it hindering you? Um, what is it doing in your life? Uh, so that you can figure out whether or not it's healthy at this point, because sometimes uh, just making it, going through it, you just have to go through it. Maybe, maybe you haven't gone all the way through it yet. Maybe it's not healthy at this point. Maybe you need to come back and, and, and deal with it with God, but it's different for everyone. And I would not try to go off of what other people experience or go through as to whether or not um, what your grieving process is, um, whether it is good or bad. Um, so I don't know that you just stop. It's kind of like as you're moving forward, you, you, you move forward in your relationship with God and that the loss of that person is always a part of you. And I don't think it's not supposed to be. I think that when we lose a loved one, um, that loss of that loved one should always be a part of what we are going through and the different things that we face. So thanks, James. I hope that is helpful. Um, I appreciate you and I hope that things are, um, will go better for you as you, um, as you face this. All right. Uh, okay, so I'm going to bring in a question here from Renee. Um, Renee, it's good to see you. I hope that you are are blessed. Renee says, God has confirmed to me through several independent sources that I have to sever a relationship. How do I find the courage to trust God and be obedient? For FYI, this relationship was very abusive and the man is in prison. All right, Renee, thank you very much um, for your question. And I'm sorry that you are in a, an abusive relationship. When we get into abusive relationships, it's hard, it's hard for people to see things really clearly. And oftentimes when someone's in an abusive relationship, when you're in a healthy relationship, you're like, why would they ever be in that? If that happened to me, I'd be out of here. But the attitude that you develop over a period of time being abused by someone and not just physically, but emotionally, um, is, is that what, what some, I think, would call a victim mentality. And it's really hard to break it off. And um, sometimes you just got to make 
You just gotta make that decision. You've got a great time to be able to do it now. You're gonna have to deal with him again probably when he comes out of prison. I don't know what he's in there for, Renee. Um, but if God has confirmed this to you, you need to be obedient uh, to that confirmation. Uh, and um, I think abusive relationship, you should, you know, you, you, you should get out of it to sever that relationship. Um, also realize that the advice that I'm giving you now is on a very little information. And it may be good for you, Renee, to go in and sit down and talk with a pastor. Tell them everything that's been happening. Um, if, if you can do that, then they're gonna be able to give you better advice, advice that's going to be helpful to you, um, that's not just uh, a kind of like quick advice off of a, a quick question that you ask. Like there's a lot more things that I would like to know um, here. Um, that you're gonna sever the relationship. What has the relationship been? What is it now? Um, how can I find the courage to trust God and be obedient? I would say that just takes knuckling down and doing it. When, when God gives you a warning of something and you know that you've gotta to respond uh, to that warning, then it really does just take knuckling down and doing what God told you to do. Because if you don't, it's scary. It's scary that if God's giving you that direction, um, one of the worst things that can happen is that God gives you over to something that he's been trying to warn you about. So I would say to be obedient to God, but I would go and talk with a pastor. Um, I know at Calvary, we have pastors and leaders that are down front. You can go and talk to them. You can also set up an appointments to be able to come in and talk with a pastor to be able to pour out the things um, that are going on. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate that. All right, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and bring in Nicole's question here. It's a big one. All right. So, um, looking at uh, just looking at my focus here really quick. I don't I don't know if my focus was that good. Or at least back there. So, let me go ahead and get closer here. Make sure that I stay in focus here. Um, so, um, Nicole says, "Question. Hi, Pastor Robert. Hello, Nicole. Uh, certain people in my life." who I truly believe have worked to build a relationship with Christ and understand the word have approached me and said they cry for me and that I may not get into heaven due to my sexual immorality. Every time I engage in this behavior, I am filled with guilt and apologize to God. I can't seem to change, so it seems. In your opinion, will my sexual immorality keep me from salvation when I die. All right, Nicole, thank you very much uh, for your question. Um, yeah, temptation is strong. And sexual temptation is strong. And when you lay out behavior, behavioral patterns follow through. Again, I would love to see you uh, find yourself, um, I would love to see you find yourself spending some time talking to someone who can really help you. In your case, find yourself um, a, a woman counselor, maybe within a, a church. Um, we have women in our church that'll counsel. The most churches you can find uh, people that will be able to counsel um, what you're going through and to be able to sit down and talk to them about this and that behavior. Um, but yes, if you practice sexual immorality, then you will not make it into heaven. And I think practice is defined by something that you're doing over and over and over and over again. Uh, we don't know what's going on in your heart as far as real genuine repentance. Is there a real genuine repentance that has taken place inside of you and then you fall back into this? What I can tell you is that overcoming, facing temptation, overcoming it and winning is, is extremely important and is possible. The Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I believe that if we delight ourselves in God, if we wake up and say, I'm delighting in God today, and especially if we know that we are tempted, Jesus taught us to pray, don't lead me into temptation. And so if you really mean that, pray, God, don't lead me into temptation and forgive me my sin. And then delight yourself in God. Start right now today. Delight yourself in God. And he's going to give you the desires of your heart. He's going to reveal to you what he has for you and what he wants for you. The Bible says, if you abide in Christ, his word abides in you. We'll ask whatever you desire and it will be given to you. 
So your desires are going to change as you abide in Christ and his word abides in you as you delight yourself in the Lord. The New Testament also says that if you uh, walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And so you want to walk in the spirit and you want to say, Lord, help me to be able to walk in the spirit. Um, yes, I, I think there's a, a real problem here, Nicole. Um, and, and I don't know whether or not you've really made a genuine commitment to Christ. If this is as a genuine Christian struggling or, or not. Um, but the Bible says no fornicator, adulterer, homosexual is going to make it into heaven. Uh, those who practice such things. So they need to be out of our lives. It doesn't mean that I've known people that have had affairs and been forgiven and still walk with Christ. So it doesn't mean they can't be forgiven, but certainly as a continued activity, it's something that needs to be turned from. And um, I hope you find that strength, Nicole, and I hope that you're able to find a good godly woman to be able to talk to. I'm not sure where you're at, but you can call your church and just say, I need to talk uh, to someone about some sexual things. I prefer a woman. That's going to be helpful to you. All right. So uh, I appreciate, I appreciate you. I appreciate your question. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and bring in another question here. Uh, Rick Jordan. Good to see you, Rick. Uh, says, hi, Robert. During the exodus of Moses, did the Egyptians depart Egypt with the um, Israelites? Um, so let me give a little bit of thought to this, Rick. Um, yeah, I think there were the mixed multitudes. So there were Egyptians that had married Jews and Jews that had married Egyptians and their children and that the mixed multitude came out with them. And when the Bible talks about some of the complaining that takes place, it takes place with that mixed multitude. It kind of comes out of the mixed multitude. So it becomes an example that we would not be a mixed multitude that live in the world and live for Christ uh, as well, but that we would focus in on being 100% sold out for Christ. So I do believe that there were some uh, Egyptians that came out with them. They were the mixed, the mixed multitudes. And um, we want to make sure that we're not that, that we turn our backs upon this world and that we live wholeheartedly uh, for God. Uh, as far as Egyptians that just left with them that, that weren't part of the mixed multitude, I don't remember off the top of my head. Maybe there were but um, I don't remember off the top of my head, maybe, um, maybe, maybe there were, but I don't think so. I think um, we can go to and look at um, the mixed multitude. So uh, we have a question here from Diana. Diana, good to see you. Diana says, um, I started a Bible study with my sister. Can you recommend a study guide use? I started with the basics. The first one was how to pray but would like to follow a guide going forward. Um, so, uh, Diana, I'm not sure that I have a recommendation for a new believers study guide. I think there's some good ones out there and you could take time to really go ahead and look at it and see who suggests, would suggest that. If memory serves me right, I think that Greg Laurie has one that's, uh, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, I, yeah, I think that any one of them would be good when it comes to um, New Believer Studies and uh, those, um, those things that would be revealed there. Um, as far as, um, I, I'm, I, if I were going to go, if I were going to do a Bible study with a New Believer, uh, I would start with John chapter 1 and just go ahead and make my way through the book of John because it's there so that we would believe and you're focusing in on Jesus. And I think that it can be very helpful. So that's what I would do if I were having a one-on-one -on -one Bible study or a Bible study with a small group of people. But there are some good new believer study guides that could cover everything that they need to know. You want to be able to cover quiet times, reading the scriptures, God's word. I mean, just, you know, prayer, like you said, so many different things that we find uh, in the pages of scripture. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. I appreciate your question, uh, Diana. Hopefully that is helpful for you. Um, so uh, let me go ahead and bring in this question here from Tim. 
Uh, good to see you, Tim. Good to see you guys that are here for the very first time. Hope you are at least asking questions for the very first time. Hope you're blessed by the time that we spend today in the Word of God. So uh, he says, um, Hebrews 10.26, Romans 2.15, Jeremiah 31.33, we are all given uh, in a born knowledge of God. We're all given a born knowledge of God. Okay. Uh, is this talking about our conscience, which tells us right and wrong, etc.? Just your thoughts on this, Pastor Robert. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, so um, Romans talks about us having creation as an external evidence for God and that we can learn a lot about God from creation because of the creation that he, he created and what it reveals to us about the power of God, the strength of God, the creativity of God, the amazing create, uh, creative aspect that God can give on, um, on, on, on just on different animals. I had a friend of mine who was talking to me the other day about one of the reasons he doesn't believe in evolution is because the humans are able to run and, and because they have two things, the Achilles heel, um, the Achilles, and also something in our, our necks that will hold our head still while we run. And that's closely related to horses that, that monkeys, apes, lemurs don't have those things. So they are not able to run the way that we can run. And, um, so how does that, how does that cross over from horses to humans in, um, in evolution. So creation reveals it to us. And then it also says that God gives each person a revelation that God exists so that each person has what they know. Now, I think that they can fight it off. They can have their, their senses as it were, um, that are seared as with a hot iron. Okay. So I, I do believe, uh, that that can happen. Um, uh, but yeah, I do believe that everyone has this sense out there. And I think that when someone says, well, God, I don't believe God exists. I'm an atheist. Um, I'm not telling them, no, you don't inside of you. You know that God exists. I think it's there, whether or not they can really identify it at that point. Um, the whole idea that there's no atheist and foxholes, that when something goes wrong, we're calling out upon God is kind of a revelation that there's something inside of us that knows that uh, there is a God. Um, but I appreciate your question. And I want to go ahead and take time to look up one of these other passages uh, just because I'm interested in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 16. Let me go ahead and go there. Then I'll bring you in on the screen and we'll take a look at that. Um, so I'm familiar with the other ones, but not familiar with why Hebrews 10, 16 would say that God's revealed to us a uh, something about himself existence. So this says, this is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and on their minds, I will write them. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure that that's the same as Romans, but it is God revealing his truth to those who have made commitments to him. All right, so um, thank you very much. I appreciate that, Tim. Hopefully uh, that's a little bit helpful. We have another question here from Annika. Good to see you, Annika. Annika says, do you believe hell is a real place? I've heard otherwise, um, otherwise based on Greek and Hebrew translations of the word used for hell in the Bible. And what are your thoughts on hell being temporary? Thank you, Annika. I appreciate that. Um, so, so yeah, the um, word for hell in the New Testament is the word Gehenna. There is a valley of Gehenna. It's where they burned garbage. In the Old Testament, the word for hell, Hades, is often the grave. Um, but in the New Testament, there's the lake of fire. And death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And it was created for Satan and his angels. And we know that the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan are tormented forever and ever. Um, and so I don't know that going back to the words that are used, and, and when you, if, if you just go and you do a, a study on what Jesus had to say about hell, uh, it's a place of darkness, it's a place of separation, it's a place of gnashing of teeth, it's a place where the worm never dies, where the fire never goes out. Uh, it is a place where people are in torment, where there's a real struggle, a real problem, real difficulty um, that people are going through. Jesus also talked about being beaten with few stripes and being beaten with many stripes. So hell is a, in a sense got, not in a sense, God will be fair, 
God will be just to those who are there and will not treat everybody just the same. The Bible pictures uh, speaks of that. So I do believe that hell is a real place because you have the lake of fire that is in the book of Revelation. You've also got references to it uh, throughout Jesus talking about hell. What, what I think the problem lies is in us going back to the Dante's Inferno, you know, kind of the medieval idea of hell or the Greek Hades where Satan is over, Hades, uh, over hell and that he's there tormenting people. And um, these have been thoughts that Christians have had for many years that are just wrong. Um, I still want to do a study on hell. I've been promising this now for over a year. And I do want to dive in, talk about what all of these different words are, talk about different passages that speak clearly of it. We are in the book of uh, Luke right now on Sunday morning. We are going to come to a couple of passages that will be a great place for us to bounce off of that. My thoughts on hell being temporary. Um, yeah, I don't believe in annihilationism. <clears throat> and I've thought this through. The, the Jehovah Witnesses believe in annihilationism. Some other cults believe in it. Um, so I don't want to just reject annihilationism just because a cult does. I want to know what the Word of God says. I want to know what the Word of God teaches about it. Um, it definitely talks about it being permanent because it talks about people being risen from the dead to everlasting life and everlasting contempt. I've often asked the question, is, man's, is man eternal? Was man created by God to be eternal or are we given eternal life? Um, and then when people are resurrected, they are resurrected for judgment in their bodies to suffer. And the Bible talks about the torment, the smoke of their torment going up forever and ever. And I understand the arguments that people make for annihilationism. I think that they are sent from the presence of God where there is darkness and um, that the concept of them being destroyed or perishing, I'm not going to say that it's not taught in Scripture because the Bible uses, I mean, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible talks about a narrow way leading to destruction. The question is, are those being allegorized? Is destruction or perishing hell or is God using the worm never goes out, the fire that never burns as a as an analogy. You gotta you gotta allegorize something when you're talking about hell because of those different things um, that are there. So um, those are my thoughts on hell being temporary. I don't believe it is. I don't believe in annihilationism. I don't believe in universalism. But I also don't believe that people will have their skin filleted for all of eternity. Um, I think that what they suffer will be fair, will be compared to what they did, all right? And, and no one's going to want to stand before God without Jesus as their advocate, okay? So thank you very much, Annika, for your question. I really do appreciate that. Um, so we have another questions. Um, we have another question from Heather, or we have a question from Heather. Heather says, what about churches that knowingly deceive? Um, I wouldn't want to be them. When we are trusted with God's word and we want to give the truth. And so when someone is just knowingly deceiving, um, I wouldn't want to be them. And there are churches that do it. And there are people that do it for money. There are people that do it for their own reasons um, that are not faithfully just seeking God, but they are, they are deceptive on purpose. And um, again, you're going to have to answer to God. Think about it. You're chosen by God. You're called that you would represent him and say what's proper and correct. And then you don't represent him properly. You don't represent him correctly. And um, what a tragedy that would be. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, so we have a question from All Pink. Uh, good to see you, All Pink. Um, question, is baptism required for your salvation? Will you go to hell if you don't get baptized? Uh, thank you very much for your question. Um, no, baptism is not um, salvation. Baptism is something that Christians do. Um, and I think that every Christian should be baptized. Um, but it is not salvation. 
in the, the Bible, you have the Bible saying, believe and you will be saved. In other places, you have believe and be baptized and you will be saved. But you don't ever have a place where it says, uh, be baptized and you will be saved. And if we were saved by baptism, then that would be works. And there are, uh, excuse me, there are churches that teach baptismal regeneration for sure. They teach that if they're saved, then, I mean, if, if they've been baptized, then they're saved. And I, I, I knew a guy who in his later sixties, who believed that because he was baptized, he was saved. When you began to talk to him, you realize he didn't know the first thing about what it meant to be a Christian or to follow God or, or who Jesus was or the deity of Jesus or, or none of that. And that became a revelation to me that this is the danger of saying, I speak in tongues, therefore I'm saved. I've been baptized, therefore I'm saved. I go to church, therefore I'm saved. I go to the right church, therefore I'm saved. The danger is that you think that that's what salvation is rather than what real genuine salvation is. So we are saved by grace through, um, uh, not of any works, but we're saved by, by faith through grace or by, by grace through faith. It is not a work lest anyone should boast, the Bible says in the book of Ephesians. So baptism, speaking in tongues, going to a certain church, going to church on, on Saturday, all of those things that people try to say are salvation works are not salvation works at all. All right, thank you very much. Um, all Pink, I appreciate that. So we have another question here, uh, and I'm gonna go ahead and bring this in, and this will be our last question for today. If you have any other questions that you're working on right now, go ahead and submit them. I'll take a look at them later on for first questions uh, for our, um, uh, first questions for our, our Q&A. Uh, we'll be back again, as I said, on Saturday. Um, she says, was a little confused, a uh, question. This is Amy. Amy says, was a little confused by Revelation 13, seven through 10. Who is this scripture talking about specifically when I thought we would be raptured and not have to go through this? It starts with saying that God's holy people, but then goes on to those who are not written in the book of life. All right, so let's go to, to Revelation. Let's go ahead and go there. We'll pull this up. We'll start in um, Revelation 13. So this is the beast that comes out of the sea, which we know is the Antichrist. So it's talking about him. I just want to go ahead and go to verse, um, let me see where, where it's at, we're at in verse seven. Um, I bet I want to make sure I read this in context. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, all right, so let's start in verse five. Let me go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you. So in verse five, it says, um, and this is talking about the Antichrist, and he was given a mouth to speak great blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened up his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in it. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And all authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So here's why I believe that we as the church will not be in the tribulation period. Because um, some people believe that they'll be supernaturally controlled or supernaturally kept uh, during the tribulation period. But here, the saints are given over to him. Um, the saints here represent the church, by the way, okay? So, I mean, excuse me, the saints here represent the children of Israel. Some of you guys are going, what? No, the church is gone. We're raptured up. We've been told that we are not going to experience the wrath of God. Uh, we're told to pray that we'd be counted worthy to escape these things. Revelation 3.10, um, that because you've kept your word to persevere, God will also keep us from the great test time of testing that's coming upon the whole earth um, that we have not been appointed to God's wrath the tribulation period is a time of God's wrath but then who are the saints here they're the Jewish nation who received the Antichrist as the Messiah but in the abomination of desolation they turn away and this um, the the Antichrist wants to destroy um, them we also have tribulation saints that get saved and who believe for a while um, I mean who believe um, after we are removed and uh, they, the, Antichrist is, the Antichrist is given authority over them as well. So let, now that we've read your passage, let's go ahead and go back and look at your question again. Um, I thought we would be raptured and not have to go through this. We, yeah, we don't. We don't. This is talking about the nation of Israel. Um, Jeremiah 30 verse 7 says that the, the, the day of the Lord is a day of trouble, a grave day of great difficulty. It is a day of Jacob's trouble. 
Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So it's Israel. And that's where you find the 144,000 sealed in the book of Revelation. You find Jerusalem, the center there, the Antichrist, uh, the abomination of desolation takes place on the Temple Mount. So you find God dealing with Israel. So the context here is Israel. And also if you go back and you look at chapter 12, you find a woman who is pregnant with a child and the 12 stars under her feet. This woman is the nation of Israel. The child is Christ and the Antichrist wanting to devour him. And that's what he's been trying to do for a long time. So hopefully, Amy, that will be help, helpful for you. Um, if you have any more questions about that, I'd be happy to answer them in the future. It's been good to see you guys, to spend this time with you. We'll have another Q&A on Saturday, uh, so you can uh, join us then as well. Uh, there are other questions that I see here. Um, let me see, I got a, a follow-up question by Alex. Um, uh, yeah, so just bring this in here. This will be the closing. So Alex has a follow-up question to what he asked for. Follow-up, I have even prayed with the people, but then see actions from them working against me, persecuting, backstabbing, shady, behind the back. Um, how should I deal with these? All right, so Alex, you're talking about those who obviously are not believers or who, who say they are believers, um, but they're not. Um, I would say the same thing is true of what Jesus said before, that you rejoice over being able to suffer for his name's sake, that you're facing persecution from these people. It doesn't tell us where the persecution would come from someone who looks like a Christian or acts like a Christian, um, but you're, you're going through persecution and you should rejoice over that, all right? So it looks like I had a little bit of a focus issue here. Sorry about that. Um, I'll get that worked out uh, for future episodes, all right? So God bless you guys. Stay close to Jesus. I was glad to be able to spend this time with you today. I hope you are blessed. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And we will see you guys. In two hours, we have a service. Um, we're going to be talking about Christian living, why we are waiting for the return of Christ. What kind of things, how should we be living while we are waiting for the return of Christ? And um, really the role of working, that working has to play in, um, in living for him today. All right, so I'm signing out. God bless you guys. We will see you later.